This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome, movie lovers, to Anatomy of a Movie. This is a, going to be a very spoiler-filled episode talking about Blade Runner 2049. So that's right. Uh, stay tuned. We're going to discuss. Welcome to Popcorn Talk, featuring movie discussion, news, and interviews. Popcorn Talk. We talk movies. And now, here's Popcorn Talk's Anatomy of a Movie. That's right, ladies and gentlemen. Peter and the Wolf. (laughs) We have Dimitri Panos. Hey, movie fans. How are you? We have Marissa Serafini. Hello, everyone. And I'm Phil Svitek, here to talk about the latest uh, addition into the Blade Runner universe. If you will, the Ryan Gosling vehicle, Blade Runner 2049. Uh, very excited to be here. Obviously, a very big movie with a lot of history, lots to discuss. Uh, first and foremost, I made mention of it at the top. This is going to be spoiler filled. We assume you've seen the movie. This is going to be not only in depth about the storylines, but we'll also talk about the production and so forth. Lot, lots of things there. Uh, secondly, as part of our attempt to really dissect the film, we've included a link in our description box with our notes so definitely check that out um, a lot of good stuff there including links to some of the things that we're going to talk about such as the short films that um, are supplementary to this to this uh, epic movie already but before we dive in as we always do let's start with quick thoughts ladies first marissa hmm. um admittedly i did i wasn't rushing to go see this film i i had watched the first one in film school, more so out of obligation. Um, but when I watched the first one, I admittedly I didn't really like it as much. It took me two times to get through the whole thing. So just because of that experience didn't make me really want to go see this one. Um, I did, and I liked it a lot more than I actually thought I was going to. I think the, the visuals were quite the spectacle. Holy crap, and we'll definitely get into it. The color, it was gorgeous. I was saying earlier before we went live, Orson Welles would have had a field day with this film. With the cinematography, it's just so visually awe and jaw-dropping. I I loved it for that aspect. The storyline, I think, was actually very simple and also, I feel, very predictable. But overall, this was a very solid film. All right, there you go. Dimitri? Yeah, a couple of things. Blade Runner, for me, the original, um, near and dear to my heart, it actually got me through college. And when I mean got me through college, I wrote three different papers in college about Blade Runner uh, for various classes. Um, So, I'm a fan. Uh, (laughs) I've been a fan, uh, you know, since it had come out. And I know that there are like five distinct different versions of Blade Runner, all available on a Blu-ray right now. Um, you know, and, and everybody has their favorites. What's been great about Blade Runner is how it has grown from above and beyond, like, just cult movie status. People know of Blade Runner. People have their favorite versions, and people uh, have debate over various themes of, of the original movie. And it continues to today, which is fantastic. Um, the movie is 
built a legacy. So I couldn't wait for 2049. And all in all, I... I I really liked it. Uh, I mean, if not, just loved it. I think it's, I think it's excellent science fiction. Uh, Denis Villeneuve really expanded the universe. It's a bigger movie uh, than the original Blade Runner. I disagree, Marissa, that it is a simple plot. There's so much going on. There's way more, actually. The singularity of the original Blade Runner, story-wise, uh, you know, it's very. It, that's a simple story that has a lot of themes. Denis Villeneuve and, and his writers, they really expanded this universe. They, they expanded the narrative. They expanded the, the locations. We're not just in Los Angeles. It becomes, it is a very, uh, it's, noir science, it's noir science fiction. It's tech noir. It's neo-noir. But it expands. It's almost like taking the big sleep and comparing it to what Chinatown is. I mean, Chinatown is very expanded. I know they're in different universes. I'm just comparing film war and movies. So this is what Blade, Blade Runner has just opened up the universe and seeing a lot of other Southern California. Now, thematically, I thought it was, I thought it was fantastic. I loved how we open. Uh, I loved how our last shot. I love how we end. Um, it has everything in there that is the human condition. That is always what makes great science fiction when we've talked about movies like interstellar it is about the human condition and this has everything from godlike complex to moral ambiguity to self-awareness to you know everything that is what it is to be human whether you are actually a human or you're a replicant and what you believe in it's in this movie and as you said it was just stunning to look at uh, everybody who I recommended the movie to, I said this. I said uh, two things. See it on the biggest, best possible screen you possibly can. If you IMAX, XD, whatever that format is, because the movie just looks stunning. Sound-wise, it was amazing. Music we'll get into a little <laughs> bit later. Um, but it just sounded and looked beautiful. I also saw... Uh, I've seen it twice... Uh, the second time I saw it in 3D, uh, I can say that the 3D in the movie was good. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think you benefit either way, um, to be honest with you. And you know I'm a 3D fan, so I'll shoot you straight on that. If you have the option, it's not really necessary to see it in 3D. There were some scenes that looked great. But all in all, if you just see it on the best possible screen, you're going to get a, a great visual experience. It just washes over you. It has to be nominated for visual effects. Mm-hmm. Roger Deakins, again, I mean, he just give him an Oscar already for crying out loud. His, his cinematography and his lighting and the way they made everything look was just stunning to look at. It was a gorgeous, moving portrait uh, up on that screen. And I thought the performances matched everything. And even the news uh, direction, again, languidly paced... But all his movies are. They're all deliberately paced in some way, shape, or form. I think this way, it just lets everything seep in. You gotta pay attention. Much like Blade Runner. Pay attention to what's being said, who's saying it, how it's being said. There's meaning. Uh, So, yeah, all in all, uh, you know, I just... You know, outside of music, which we'll talk about, uh, done by Hans Zimmer, who we talk about a lot, because he seems to do almost every other score. (laughs) So... 
But outside, uh, yeah, I just, yeah, I really love this movie. It makes it into my top three thus far for this year, which is Dunkirk, this, Baby Driver. Uh, I haven't parsed everything out yet, and we're not... We're, we're not done yet. We're not done yeah. yet, so no. things things are fluid. So, uh, it, for me, um, I did appreciate the movie. I thought it worked well overall. I thought visually it was great and so forth. Um, and as far as takeaways, I would summarize it in this way. Especially now in today's day and age where everyone is told that they're a unique flower um, or whatever you want to say. I think that, that that message sort of resonated that you don't, you're not unique, but that doesn't mean you don't have a purpose within life. And I think that's what um, – <clears throat> I'll call him Joe. I'll humanize him. I'll call him Joe. That's what Joe learns. Now, as far as the rest of the themes, maybe – you know, I heard it summarized best where this is an alternate reality if – um, instead of having an information explosion, we had an energy explosion in the sense of, you know, advances tech, through technology towards that. Because they're, in this universe, they're not sharing information. It's purely energy-based. Um, and so it seemed a little, you know, disconnected and not as, um, I don't want to say that pertinent because I think there's a lot of takeaways and things like that. But I just felt as far as themes and the things that it addresses... Um, it doesn't advance um, ideas for me or how I view the human condition or things I think about uh, in any any different way than the first one did, you know. And obviously, the first one was so amazing. And I'm, you know, if this was all we had and we didn't have the first one, I think this one could still work, and I'd be blown away. But thematically, it's just one of the same again as Blade Runner. Interesting. So because uh, see, I looked at it especially. Well, we didn't talk about Rick Deckard, and 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 because his story, I think, was his his. Again, if they don't make another one, I think his story was told. And this is what I find very interesting about the movie thematically too, is that the movie opens up on Kay or Joe, but we end on Deckard. Okay, which is odd because who are we watching this movie through? It's mostly through Kay. But part of that is the finding of Rick Deckard. That's part of the mystery. But it's a larger mystery because it's all what Kay is going through to, to find this whole thing. But it's also like one of the major debates, and we'll, maybe we'll talk about it later, is Deckard, human or replicant? And I think this movie cements... I think it cements a couple of things, but I think it cements the answer to that question. I have always surmised that... In order for Blade Runner to work as a science fiction, Deckard is human. He's got to go along through a through a learning process. He has to. He has the worst job, as this movie calls it, in the galaxy, in the universe. It's all about him finding his through humanity through non-humans. And in this movie, at the end of the movie, if his expression doesn't state like the joy, the heart, the uh, you know. The, the love for his daughter, which we find out. I mean, that to me cements it. And Kay is the person that brings him there. I just find it very interesting that it was Harrison Ford or Decker that we end on, and not the person who we start on who we're like supposed to be watching this. Yeah. So, you know, Deckard is still an extremely important part of this movie, as is another character who has very little screen time, but, but his presence is is felt throughout too. So, but I think thematically, 
Well, here's I what I'll say. Great. You know, I, th- I think we can kind of open up there, right? Um, it's the debate that's been raging for years. Um, but I don't necessarily understand why, because as part of the development process, and, you know, Ridley Scott said this in various iterations, so this isn't the only quote. Um, in 2012, Ridley Scott said, it's not a rumor, it's happening, meaning this movie. Uh, with Harrison Ford, question mark, I don't know. Is he too old? Well, he was a Nexus 6, so we don't know how long he can live, and that's all I'm going to say at this stage. Like, what mm. other... You know well, what I mean? Yeah, but a Nexus 6, was it was made perfectly clear, has a four-year lifespan. He's He can't... He, and, and the writers of this movie state he's human. Harrison Ford himself state he's human. Well, the irony of Harrison Ford's statement is you can consider that in some sort of... Uh, like a, a method acting in, in a fashion because... <laughs> Deckard himself did not know that he was a replicant, so Harrison Ford not knowing that he's a replicant, like, that just plays into it. No, because he has a human daughter. Like, replicants aren't going to make a biological human being. So, but that's the miracle. What, no, we know. no, the miracle is that a replicant was able to have a baby. A machine was able to give birth. That's the miracle. Like, machines don't give birth to biological beings. Mm. And so for that to happen, you have to have some semblance of biological link. And again, for, for, for Deckard to be a replicant means there's too much going on in Blade Runner. That means Bryant knew that he was a replicant. That means that Tyrell knew that he was a replicant. And just, oh, I'm bringing you in. And it's too many people would know that he's a replicant, including other replicants. Because in this world, 2049, it's pretty easy for replicants to suss out other replicants. They don't need this Voight-Kampf test that was such a big deal in, um, in Blade Runner. But part of what makes Blade Runner Blade Runner is because the job is so hard and stressful. And because of that, that opportunity to accidentally eradicate or terminate or, 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 you know, put down a human being. You have to be on your job. And it, it was a job that ruined his family life. It was a job that left him a loner. And he was more or less drafted back into it. He wasn't, he was forced back to taking the job to take on the job to hunt down these replicant, these um, Nexus 6s, which came, which hijacked the ship, yeah. you know, and came back to Earth. So Ridley Scott, I think, is, again, he's, directors lie. I mean, the (laughs) Coen brothers have lied about many of their projects. I, you know, for this to be a human condition story, and and for this to go forward, Deckard is human. Marissa, what's your stance on this? I I think it makes sense that, uh, to to put this this whole controversy one I, I always you know watching the first one i always had the the idea that he could be human and then with the second with this film coming out pretty much solidifying that theory that if you're going to create a child and have an actual biological birth there has to be he has to be human like or at least someone out of all this is human so at uh, this film solidified my thought that yes he's officially human all right. Well, all I'll say in terms of that is, um, you know, it's certain until it's not, right? I'll put it to you. <laughs> no, because, no, no, no. I'm listen, laughing at the truth of your statement. Yeah, you know, like, okay, if if in the entire world all we ever see is, uh, let, 
black ducks, right? Then the world only has black ducks. All it takes is one blue duck to come along and disprove that entire notion. So, you know, the fact that, like, listen, I don't know the full rules of this the uh, of this universe and you know what like they're not just pure machines and like they're not like physical robots they're more human than human and that you know as far as um wallace was concerned that's what pissed him off was how did tyrell figure out something that i didn't and if he could make replicants actually mate and truly be more human than human that is a miracle of miracles. It is. Yeah. And, th- and, that's, and that's the crux of this story, is that miracle and that Rachel was the one. It was noted in Blade Runner, the original Blade Runner, it was specifically said that Rachel was special. Okay? The unicorn, to me, wasn't Decker dreaming about himself. It was Decker dreaming of Rachel and being special. She's the unicorn. Gaff would have known that Deckard is a blade is 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 a replicant. His semi-quasi partner, played by Edward James Olmos, he left behind. You know, he left behind a unicorn at Deckard's apartment when he's when he's smuggling Rachel out so that they can go into the woods, uh, go north or wherever. You know, he was the one, you know, Gaff even knew that Rachel was special. He let them go. Um, so for me, all of those things says we didn't know enough about Rachel. And to me, that was one of the major revelations of this movie. As soon as they found that box and that it was a woman, and I was like, oh my head, that's, that's Rachel. Wow, that's amazing. She gave birth. That's what made her so special. And then from there, everything begins to crumble. And we could talk about, like, Robin Wright's performance. I thought was fantastic. She was great. But what that means to the Blade Runner universe, you know, and some people were trying to hide this, and, 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 and other people were... And then you had, you know, Wallace trying to commercialize it, in a sense. And then the other... Uh, replicants were trying to like this is going to be our revolution well here's the thing that you know um if i had any problem with the movie it was the fact of there was this big importance everyone kept saying it and you know i appreciate the movie for as big a scale as it is it 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 narrows in on very few characters believe it or not right Mm -hmm. um because certainly other movies could have expanded this and and whatnot uh but the weight of all of this, I'm just kind of told, not necessarily shown. You know, we get hints very late in the movie that there's an uprising. That, the, you know, uh, you mentioned about Robin Wright's character. You know, she has a problem with it. Wallace is trying to uh, capitalize on it. We've not, you know, I jokingly said, we've not seen the off world yet. I don't know what the hell that still means. So um, I'm only told the importance of it. And I'm, I, I don't quite understand it. And in terms of that, I've heard a lot of people say, like, Wallace hasn't technically failed yet. You know, because everyone's like, oh, great, uh, you know, the threat's over. Like, the threat's not over. No. You know, and just like my with my point, until it happens, it, ha- it just means it hasn't happened yet. Yeah, right. And, 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 and I agree. Although Offworld was pretty much in the original Blade Runner, Earth was going to hell. It was going to shit from 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 an ecology standpoint, climate, whatever. Offworld was a means for rich people 
and the people able to, to get off of Earth to lead better lives. And usually it was for people uh, who had money to do so, who were genetically deformed to do so. Um, Sebastian uh, couldn't go off-world because he had a genetic Methuselah syndrome. He had a genetic disease. That's what kept him where he is. So the population on Earth, what's there, either couldn't afford to um, go get off world to live a better life, or there was some genetic disease as the humans were having, and the, and the replicants were made as well. They were made for slave labor, um, you know, from the Tyrell Corp to help with, you know, colonization of the off worlds. Is it important? I mean, at some point, I guess if they make future movies, it's not a bad place to. I think they set up the concept that there is an off world. It's something that they purposely kept us in, like in a mystery, because we're still wondering about it. It's just knowing that it's there is probably something we'll eventually go to in the quote unquote future. (laughs) (laughs) Well, here's the: I do agree with you. Um, They probably could. I just don't necessarily want them to. You know, what I've appreciated is their ability to, to keep compact in this way. Um, but that's why, like, you know, there's a lot of talk about the the Messiah storyline, right? And that seems to be, like, whether we're talking about Hunger Games, Harry Potter, or The Matrix, anything like that, it's the chosen one is here. And, um, you know, as far as that, the, 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 the twist in this movie is that, uh, that Joe is not the Messiah, the chosen one. It's actually who we didn't expect. Um, but nonetheless, now there is a chosen one and something has to be done with that. And unfortunately it just kind of leads into too many things that, um, become to me at this point cliched unless you do it absolutely perfect. Right. And I think though, I think as a, as you put it, a chosen one, it doesn't necessarily mean that there need be a revolution powered by the chosen one. The chosen one, I don't think that she has, she doesn't have... Her special ability is that she is human and that she her memories are human me- memories, the best memories, the strongest memories, and, and the greatest imagination in conjuring up memories for the mm-hmm. replicants, okay? That's her strength. She doesn't have a super power, per se. I don't need to see that character grow, <laughs> um, meaning... I don't need to see her like take charge with the sword of, of Damocles and, like and she doesn't and, have right. to lead the no. thing. But her 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 being a miracle is what that precipitates that that's what people want to follow. Um, you know, if you want to say a messiah she, she she her miracle is just being born. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean she too is suffering from a genetic disease that kept her from going off world. Um and she's very self-aware. Uh, I really, on, upon second viewing, that character really grew on me and, and that actress's nuances. Um, so to me, her thing is, it's the miracle that she was born, period, from Rachel. Um, but what do you do with that? Like, either like your Wallace, you kind of figure out how to replicate it. If you're the replicants, then what? You do the same thing? It's but, meaning that tra- they could, at, with various modification, or maybe somebody, or they could potentially, it's for the potential and the hope that they could give birth. And with birth 
as Kay or Joe said it, well, if you're born, you have a soul. But that's the, so, that's the, so why is it different than what Wallace is trying to achieve anyway? Like, essentially their goals, do they not align? Wallace's I, needs are to make more replicants so that he can have a bigger slave workforce. The whole reason why he got into this replicant business and why he was allowed to do so was because he put in there and made it and convinced everybody that his replicants are completely subservient. That, that's seen actually in one of the shorts. You know, They will be uh, 100% listen to orders uh, and they will kill themselves if their owner says, kill yourself. So there's no self-awareness or consciousness in that case. These other replicants, these replicant eights, can, uh, the way that it was shown, can come to some semblance of a self-awareness. And since Rachel, we don't necessarily know if she was a... We're told that she was a Nexus 6. That's why Bryant, Deckard's boss, says, Hey, we want you to go and void comp there's supposedly a Nexus 6. That's, that's how he gets thrown into this. So, but she truly was a special replicant. I, and, and again, above and beyond a Nexus 6 or whatever, whether she had a Nexus designation, I'm not entirely convinced. I just think that when Tyrell made her, he was to be, she was the pinnacle of where replicants could go. Uh, without, you know, she was an experiment. She was a prototype. And she was very special. Well, you know, I guess all in all, major theme with this, unless you guys disagree, and if so, let me know, um, and that goes for you guys watching or listening, uh, is this notion of surpassing your programming, which, you know, is actually a pretty beautiful notion, because I think you could apply that to, you know, um, I, for me, it's less about the the AI and the, you know, machine stuff, it's more about, okay, the humans, and so if you look at it from the human perspective... Like, we essentially have, quote, programming. Mm-hmm. You know, there's people who, who have dyslexia, and their programming is like, oh, well, you can't read. Well, there's plenty of people who overcome dyslexia and do amazing things. Um, people that have handicaps of whatever kind, mental or physical, they surpass their, quote, programming. Um, and whether it be Joe in this instance, I think he ultimately surpassed his programming. Part of what... Um, what he was trying to do with Joy was surpass her programming, which in that instance, I don't think she ever did. Um, he, but he believed that she did. I believe that that Joy did. I believe that Joy did. But going back to Kay or Joe, he was, if you remember, a major scene too is that he had to come back in for what they, I guess, were terming baselining, which was something new that we were that we're introduced to. So he had to like... I liked this process though. Yeah, it was interlink. Interlink. Interlinking. Yeah, interlinking. Interlinking. He had to go back to baseline. Once he started to believe that he was special, that he may have been the son of Rachel and Deckard, his baseline began to change. Things inside him began to change. He was brought in and reprimanded. Like, what the is going on with you i've noticed there are changes in you you need to settle down officer you know i mean he was reprimanded big time so i think he was becoming more than his programming well he also lied in that moment yes which makes him he's replicants aren't supposed to lie yeah 
in so. that case. And towards the end, you know, even when he finds out he's not the chosen one, let's call it, let's call it he was he was visibly upset, but he knew. I think that that was you know? the the great thing about the inner linking but, scene was that it, it showed the first time because yes, he assumingly that he is a replicant, but he's so good at the the programming of what were expected the replicants are to be that he became more human in that instance. Therefore, his genetic makeup actually physically changed with the human involvement. And I like that because it shows that the the system is so advanced and it's far exceeding what they were expecting that he was becoming more human just in a certain belief that it was physically changing him as well. Yeah. From the inside, and, From the and inside. they could tell. They, you know, they could see the ones and zeros or, or more. So that, t- yeah, it was a very. It's a, a thematically too. It is a very. It's a very deep theme when you're watching Kay's character as he goes along, and then he commits the ultimate sacrifice. He sacrifices himself for the better good, which in his mind is putting Deckard back with his daughter. Making sure that Deckard, I mean, one of the greatest lines, he goes, you should have, Deckard's like, you should have let me die in that. He goes, who said you didn't? He goes, you drowned in that thing. As far as I'm concerned and and the world is going to be concerned, you drowned in that ship. Come on, let me go take you to your daughter. It's an amazing line. Your past life is dead and now you get to live a new one. It's such an amazing line. Um, Yeah, it's it's just, it's great. And, and, And it's said, that's a theme. Uh, sacrificing oneself for the greater good, and that's what Sapper Morton did. Yeah, you know, at the at the beginning of the movie. Absolutely, um, you know, and and I agree in terms of that. Um, as far as you know, his his journey, and and you're right with with him finding out that he's not the chosen one. It, he was completely emotional, and there was that noticeable change throughout. That yeah, he was he was gaining emotion. Um, which which I appreciate a lot. Um, which I, when Deckard and and him first meet, that whole um, whiskey scene, <laughs> I thought I thought that was really good. And you know, um, I was just waiting for the moment. So like, hey, you're my dad. <laughs> <laughs> right. I really dad? was. I, I just it just there was that awkward tension, and you know they were asking pretty direct questions and and whatnot. But like, except the one that just was the most direct. Are you my dad? The elephant or, in the room. Yeah. <laughs> I'm glad that they didn't, though, because now when we got the big reveal at the end that he wasn't, it makes sense that they never brought it up. Well, but they... It makes sense they, for Deckard. Yeah, it makes sense for Deckard, but like it also makes sense that they didn't actually say the line, are you my father, X, right. Y, Z. And they ended up explaining that because Deckard's like, yeah, well, he's like, yeah, I know that there were two. So what happened to the male? He's like, what are you talking about? He goes, I had a, we had a daughter. Because you didn't have a daughter. We had a daughter. And so that's when the self-realization starts coming in. And, and Kay or Joe himself starts to piece together the pieces of Scrambling. The, the puzzle and what's going on. Um, so, so that, yeah, again, I love the whiskey scene. Um, it was like they're together. They were really... It was a very interesting dynamic where they both were learning. And one, you know, and at the end, one gave him 
you know, Joe or Kay gave him the greatest gift. Yeah. Well, I, I think, I mean, I, a, um, a part of it, a central theme is like the Descartes line of I think, therefore I am. You know, uh, Deckard himself was like, I know what's real. And um, obviously Joe, his entire thing was like, you know, I knew it was real, or this and that, like everything. And so in that regard, as far as it relates back to you know, actual human philosophy, it's this notion like your reality is defined by you. And so at any given point, what you believe, that is your truth. It doesn't mean it's real, but that is your reality. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, to, as you may mention, it can change your biochemistry. Mm-hmm. Much in the same way like, hey, if you view the world in sunshines and rainbows, then you will see, you will have, a, you know, a more upbeat, pers- you know, physical, person, chemical reaction as opposed to being depressed it's going to chemically change you. Well, and, and again, let's talk about that just for, for a minute. Like, it's not... There's a change within him, much like when there's a change within all of us, whether we're, if we're watching a scary movie, if you had a monitor set up to us, it would oh, be... Oh, good Lord. Right. <laughs> if you were on, say, Guardians of the Galaxy right at Disneyland, Stop California Adventure, it. and you had her hooked up to it... You would get a much different read than you would if you were. Um, you felt human on parts feel like you're dying. Yeah. <laughs> you, 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 th- there would be a chemical difference. So when Kay is lying, when he's changing, it was because again, it was almost like coming out of or going into puberty, right? <laughs> he's having this like all of these. Oh my God, I could potentially be the chosen one. I know I'm a replicant, but what if? And, and, of course, joy helped feed that. Mm-hmm. Um, but what if? Does that make me special? Like, And so you could see that. Like, he's not changing, like, physically mm-hmm. or anything. Just from within, the chemical reaction that's happening, right, whether it's, quote-unquote, adrenaline or hydraulic fluid, whatever it is in there, is 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 changing within him. He's no longer baseline. Well, that, that was and he the- can't get back to base. Well, that, that was... Um- uh, I don't know if uh, helping, like Joy helping him realize that is the right uh, operative word. Um, simply because, like, Joy is him. To me. Essentially, right? I mean, the, the, her programming is to, whatever you want me to say, I will tell you. You want me to say you're awesome? Great. I'm going to tell you you're awesome. You want me to tell you that you're a piece of shit? I'll tell you you're a piece of shit, even though we, we didn't see that side of it. No. You know, right. like, this is his idea. He wants to be special, so that's why, like, his, his idealized world, he goes home and he has this wife, like, hey, how's your day? I'm cooking for you, but ba 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 But I believe that program of joy was learning as well. Like, I, I believe that the... what Because the difference, and again, to me, it was very... It's a very powerful sad scene his joy knew his likes his needs and wanted to accommodate in, in, in every possible way but not just above and beyond being servitude and slavery and, and such she was a companion she was a conscience to him she was like trying to say hey this could be you like what are you looking for like I know you're looking for DNA or, or, or strands. You know, I know in ones and zeros, but I think she too is becoming above and beyond her programming because of Kay. Well, go ahead and rest. Well, talk. what I liked about the just the representation of Joy is showed that 
every interaction that Kay had with Joy that uh, it gave Kay the opportunity to show compassion. And replicants generally don't show compassion, or they're not programmed to show compassion in like that certain way, or like the selflessness of helping someone else. And I, I like the the idea that and the concept that it allowed him to feel something and generate some type of human emotion and relationship with someone else and like that human connect connectivity definitely connectivity um but to your point of compassion my only counter to that is roy batty saves rick deckard out of compassion it is actually that 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 one action that if you listen to the overvoice uh, version one of the overvoice versions of blade runner Deckard himself is like, I don't know why he saved me. Perhaps in that one moment, he realized. And it's from that moment that Deckard's humanity really starts to blossom from within inside of him. I think the replicants can show compassion, uh, especially Dave Bautista's character, or Sapper Morton. You can see it in the short film, and you can somewhat see it. I thought he did a good job, movie. even oh. despite the length the of length. it. The length. I wanted him more. I, I mean, he was really good. And I felt sad. As a, as a quick tidbit, that entire opening, not literally, but shot-wise, was um, how they envisioned the original Blade Runner to actually open up. Right. So Except even re- a little harsher. <laughs> yeah. um, but as far as Joy, I don't know. I, I think she just, you know, I do agree that she was, quote, learning, but she was uh, essentially, uh, she was being subservient to him. You know, her whole... Pro- I, I don't think she... I think he surpassed his programming. She never really did. I don't believe because at the end of the day, she's just... Whatever he wants to think, that's what she's going to say. It's not like, let's say he did a dumb action. She's not going to tell him, hey, you made a mistake. She's going to be like... She's going to give him all the justifications of why not to feel bad or like why it was okay. Right. Um, mm-hmm. I'd, I'd like to think so too, but my only thing that's making me not fully agree is that... Literally in the last few moments that she was, quote-unquote, alive, or her program was right. working before it got smashed, was when she, Joyce, saw Kay getting beaten like a pulp, and then she actually, her own personal self, had that somewhat of a reaction, and she yelled out, I love you. That wasn't something that he made her say. Right. It, it, that one particular moment made me feel that hey, she actually has human emotions, too. She has surpassed her program. Yeah, and I believe she surpassed it even before when she said, look, they're going to, you know, he says they're, they're going to they're gonna come looking for me. She goes, well, they're going to be able to find you because they're going to be able to, you should put everything into my hollow emitter. And he's like, well, I can't do that because then I'll, like, that's it if it ever gets destroyed. And she's like, I know. I knew that and, was going to get destroyed. And, well, yeah, but but <laughs> to me, did. that is a self, some semblance of a self awareness that says I'm gonna I I'm willing to give that up to be with you, and that is not a machine type of an act. She, you know, and so she and she even said, "Make sure you break the antenna," and he snapped the antenna, which means there was no way out for her. There was no way she could be put into something else. It was all in that stick, that hollow mirror or whatever you want to call it. And, and he even said, if something goes wrong with that, you're done. And she goes, I understand that. 
And to me, that was just a, also another fine thread. Outside of the, the I Love You, which I felt was very emotional. And then when he sees the, the, the large naked joy, that was an emo... To me, and that, that's why it was so powerful, is that it was an, almost an emotionless... Like, that was like, hey, I'm the latest product. I'll do whatever you want me to do. It was like there was no... pro. It was just... I can be the best companion ever. I think ever. that was also sad, too, because when we saw the joy throughout the whole movie, it was more humanistic. It looked like a, an actual woman. It dressed like an actual woman. It gave human emotions and responded like an actual human being. Yeah. And then when, unfortunately, you know, got destroyed, and then we showed the, the new version of joy, I felt like that took a step backwards because right. it went more technology instead of more human. That was... Yeah. Joy Prostitute 2.0. Yeah. But it, it made the whole joy somewhat null and void because yeah. it makes the audience realize, oh, yeah, it was a program. It wasn't a human being. Yeah. Here's what, you know, um, I think you guys raise good points. I just happen to disagree with them. So I'll, I'll summarize sort of my point on it and then we'll move yeah. on to something else because we can go back and forth. And, um, you know, when she says to him, I love you, and when she stands up, like, at that point, she becomes, A, in, for, for standing up against uh, love and saying, hey, don't do that, that's, she becomes his voice. Because at that point, he can't do anything for himself, so that's what he would have wanted, A, and B, like, telling him she loves him, that's what he wants to hear. So all, all she's doing is feeding him his the thing, yeah, his personal, what, what he would have wanted. So it's not like she, you know, all of a sudden loves... I don't know. That's just my opinion on it. Take it or leave it. Either agree well, with you I, guys or, you know, agree with me. It doesn't matter. I think that within the Blade Runner universe, those are one of the things that... It's what makes science fiction great to discuss. Because it can be divisive, but in a very positive way. This this ain't mother, right? <laughs> this is like... And this is like when we, when we did Interstellar, you know... There are thoughts, views you can debate, and whatever. It's it's to me, it's it's the it's the power of cinema, like you know, great movies, whether it's science fiction or not, that have great themes that can be discussed openly, and that's why I think that's the power of excellent science fiction. So everybody can make a, a, a state a good case and believe. Like I can't necessarily discount. I can only say this is how I feel, and this is the way I've interpreted it from this facts, and you, and and it's no. it's it's you know, um, we weren't hit over the head and brutalized <laughs> for two yeah. hours watching. Absolutely, <laughs> um, let, I want to talk to you guys about you know definitely want to talk to Tyrell and uh, Wallace, but even before that, this idea of slavery. Because we sort of open up on it, you know, every great civilization, you know, has utilized slavery and so forth. And in this sense, like, it's slavery on the nose slavery, whereas, you know, I don't know, depending on what you really believe, like, we're in modern day slavery where, you know, you feed them crumbs and feed them false information. They'll focus on that, yet they're slaves and without even knowing it. Certainly the Matrix made a whole point of it. Right. You know, if just whatever, feed them crap and don't Don't want to focus on what's actually happening so i want to get you guys take on that because i thought that was an actual powerful statement you know um and i want to get your sort of thoughts on a what is slavery and b what slavery based on this movie in today's age does it exist 
I think it exists in some forms, maybe like emotional slave to yourself, but also I saw it in like different f- versions, physical versions in this movie because there there was a particular scene when he when Kay goes to the factory and he sees all the children, and I'm just thinking that's child labor, that's child labor, save slavery in in that sense. And I was more as a human watching all these poor children just working away and when something some went, orphanage huh you, oh god <laughs> when when something went wrong you can just you had that human reaction is like oh no are they going to beat up a child on screen in front of me so the, there there were just there were different moments um as for the slavery of like just getting something done um i don't i don't i didn't really see it in that film in that particular sense. Right, again, it's something that we see off-world. It's something that replicants have have rebelled against, at least since the original Blade Runner. I think slavery, from a thematic standpoint, it brings up, again, talking about the human condition, it's about freedom. It's about not being a slave. It's how do you get out of... What's the best way to get out of slavery, whether it be Abraham Lincoln and the Civil War... Um, and in, 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 in this world, if replicants become self-aware, I think, therefore I am, they're far better than slaves. They deserve, they, they want life. At least that's one of the themes from the original Blade Runner. They want life. They want more of it. So slavery is a great, it's a great way to start because it is, it is freedom. And everybody has inalienable rights to mm-hmm. freedom, Right. So, so that's a great, the preamble. Right. It's, it's, and that's a great place. That's a great villain mm-hmm. in which people understand, okay, and how it was set up here. So, and if you remember, uh, there's, again, great line from, um, I'll have to look up her, the, the character's name, but it's Deckard's daughter, the doctor, Elise, or... Yeah, mm-hmm. doctor. And she says... Uh, to Kay, like, he's like, oh, so you work for Wallace? She goes, no. She goes, he offered. She goes, but I subcontract to Wallace. She goes, I need my freedom. And I can't be, I'm not going to, you know, she goes, I, I need my freedom to do what I want and do what I do. As much freedom as I can have within these walls, but I subcontract to him. So that to me is very important because humanity, slavery as well, her sla- her freedom comes from within her mind what she's able to do from a replicant standpoint it's just wanting to to have life to try to coexist uh, in this movie it was more about coexistence where in Blade Runner there was somewhat coexistence but it's I want more life fucker that's, a, that's what Batty says to Tyrell you've got a four year lifespan and that four year lifespan was built into them so that they wouldn't get to a point where they would figure out and rebel. And rebel. So yeah. it was a safeguard, uh, as long as, as well as memories, which were a buffer, uh, just to keep them in line. Memories, implants, and the uh, and the time span were meant to keep them in line. Uh, so then, when they get to the Nexus Eights. Uh, then we have the blackout. Then we have the nines, which are completely supposed to be a hundred percent subservient. They are the ones supposed that to were be. supposed to be supposed subservient. To. Yeah. Well, that's what that's the bill of goods that Wall that you know Neander Wallace sold to the board. 
in trying to make replicants again because they had been um, uh, outlawed. Yeah. Well, um, so that's actually a good segue into talking about Tyrell versus Wallace. Um, and I don't know, like, what sort of... Well, I'll say this. Um, Jared Leto actually did... Uh, he, he has some, I guess, Silicon Valley friends, and so he, you know, tried to replicate them as much as he could hmm. in his performance, um, which makes sense. Uh, but as far as his performance, yeah, I, I, I'm trying to, you know, I don't think there's one sort of rivalry that you can pinpoint, um, but certainly uh, because history's presented so many in the past of, like, you know, um, one person sort of doing something in this case like you consider Tyrell like how did he do this whereas Wallace is just trying to just put as many resources as he can to you know figure out the solution but can't actually come up with it on his own which is interesting it's a very interesting thing to me yeah I I find them interesting because they both have they both have a god complex but they're coming from Mm -hmm. a different they're, they're, they're coming from a different place I think from the inside Tyrell Corporation, as Tyrell puts it himself, is like it was for the betterment of humanity, not necessarily like just for slaves. He wanted the human species to survive in a sense, and he, in his mind, he tried to do that. That that's what he was going for. I'm not saying it was the best of intentions because he had he did have a godlike in making these things, but he wasn't as fascistic. As, as as Wallace was, and again, it's it's explored somewhat in Blade Runner. But remember, Blade Runner's themes is what does one do when he and or she meets his or her creator, and and tries to get answers, and the creator can't give him the his or her the answers that they're looking for. That is more a theme of Blade Runner than than a godlike complex. But Wallace takes this, to my opinion, to a much farther, deeper level. He believes he's the savior of humankind because it is him who who eradicates the famine. He comes up with this thing, eradicates the famine. Now on Offworld, we're going to build better Offworlds because I'm building better replicants because I got that off the ground. And now I need more resources. I'm way behind. To him, it really was about... I can create and I can destroy. That was a very, again, another powerful scene when the birth of that replicant like falls down, stands up like a doe, and he just, without even a blink of an eye or any compassion, kills it. And as it's bleeding to death, he's still talking to love. And then it just, like, drops. I mean, he knows he has the power of creation and destruction like that. It's much more, to me, it was a much, his God was not coming from a good place. How do you guys yeah. then interpret, as a quick side tangent, um, Deckard's re- reaction to Rachel being killed? Because he, I mean, obviously he knew, he said, like, you know, her eyes were green, uh, therefore she, that's not her, she's false, um, but had no compassion towards that replicant whatsoever. I, I liked it because in, in one, you can clearly sub tell that in the first movie you can clearly tell there was a real actual reaction towards Rachel and he truly felt something for her and this one shows I I loved how he he was just so void of any type of emotion towards that person so uh, um, against this person because he knows that it's not 
the one that he fell in love with. And also, I just I love the interaction between the scene because <laughs> he he asked the line like, "You're not a father, are you?" And and I just love how Jarletta also says like, uh, "I have millions, millions." Right. Like that belief that he can create s- life in in so many mm-hmm. forms. Um, I, I thought it was just beautiful execution. But the the knowing that this isn't the real Rachel shows that no matter how many times you can try, you, you can never get it perfect. Right. To, and perfect as close to the first original thing. Well, and I also think that, too, it went to Neander Wallace's fallibility. Like, had he done his homework, he really would have known. But he thought mm-hmm. he was going to play Deckard. He thought, like, and Deckard knew. No. Right? But it, think also about that scene. I mean, to me, it's a powerful scene, very much for everything that you said. But the mere fact that he uncovers what, what is Rachel's skull in front of Deckard. And Deckard. Cold. Yeah, it's so, <laughs> so cold. cold. And you got to remember something else, too. Deckard's loss at the beginning of Blade Runner, right? His loss in that movie is humanity. The job has made him emotionless. He's, it's ruined his family life, his personal life. He's a loner. The loss in this movie, it comes from a far deeper emotional tide pool. And so that scene, as you said, when Rachel comes out, he's like, you're bringing up emotions. And it's a pain. It's a pain. Mm-hmm. And Neander Wallace knows this. He's trying to manipulate Blade Runner's humanity. And when he kills her, to your point, right, because he knows I can't have that back. She's dead. He's holding her skull, for crying out loud. Like, all I have, I've lost everything because of a plan. I had to save my daughter. I couldn't save Rachel at the end because of that miracle that she had. We didn't know that she was that special. It's such a powerful thing. And when he says, well, there are other means of pain. You know, you like pain. I'm not sure Deckard likes pain. I just think that his life has brought him pain. He understands pain. pain. He understands, yes. He understands pain. So that scene to me is so chilling that, again, it's so powerful and so dark. It's so cold. It's it's. I think the writing was great. I think what I loved about the scene is just the the pure brilliance and the acting from everybody to execute such an emotional you know, evokes such emotion for an emotional situation. I th- I because agree. watching it, it is such such a simple scene. Mm-hmm. And I think it's the acting that really elevated it to make it very impactful. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, um, I got to applaud Jared Leto. Um, and I want to get you guys' perspective on this. Um, the late, great David Bowie was originally thought, you know, that this would be the perfect role for him. They were going after mm-hmm. him. Um, I, th- I don't know, just because... There's such a tenderness to David Bowie versus, like, Jared Leto. There's this, like, I don't know, like, this this, this conniving, uh, like, I don't know. Um, I'll, I'll put it in this way. I apologize. I don't, Jared, I don't actually mean this about you, but in your performance, this is what I got. Very rat-like where there's an instinct, instinct on my part where, like, if I could, I'd squash you. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and I think that you know. So I want to get your guys' perspective on the performance. I get that, and also in fairness, they're, they're two completely different people. David Bowie 
in popular culture is just a very liked, very iconic person. He has that likable personality that everyone just loves him. So you associate that with a uh, you know a likability factor that you can actually get on board with this person and maybe feel something towards it. Whereas we've seen Jared Leto in previous performances of him, and not recent that not that long ago, the Joker. I mean, we know that Jared Leto has like. Um, he can get to a level of insanity to the point where you actually might physically hate him and you want to do harm unto him. But I think that just shows how great of an actor he yeah. is. I yeah, will that you, you like you love to hate him. I, I think this role is far better than the Joker for him. I thought this oh, was 100%. such a hundred percent, hundred percent. Okay, so good. I, I think that he was so nuanced. His words were veiled by his his words in the way that he almost whisper like. And the way that he almost, it was almost sing-songy, the way that he would talk. So it almost made him sound like they could be sweet. But upon listening to them, it, it's, you know, it, it was cruel intentions veiled by his words. He's like, he's a very, again, he's a very cruel god. He's n- like, and, and he's more ego megalomania, to your great line again, when he said, to your point, I have millions of millions. children. I have millions. But he doesn't care for his millions of children. Yeah. That way he wouldn't have killed a newborn. He wouldn't have had Rachel just shot in the head. The plan didn't work. Don't need her. Shoot her. His millions, he does not have the compassion. He doesn't have the ability of compassion. They are a He's essentially a, soci- a sociopath by sure. definition. And, and it's, he's a, it, they're a commodity to him. That's what replicants are. Is mm-hmm. His children are a commodity. There's no passion. There's no sympathy for them. Where I think Tyrell actually did have sympathy for, for his creations. He had it for Rachel, for sure. And even when Roy Batty uh, confronts him, you could tell that, A, Roy Batty thought about different things that could be done, but so didn't Tyrell. He's like, we tried that. He goes, you know, I... You get a sense that Tyrell tried to expand this lifespan to the Nexus 6. He goes, we tried that, but this protein will go rogue and it'll cause another virus. I got a sense that Tyrell had some semblance of compassion for his creations, not Wallace. Yeah, I mean, I would say Wallace is trying to solve... There's no emotional attachment to his creations. Yeah, Wallace is trying to solve a problem. Um, Tyrell is trying to better humanity. Mm -hmm. And it was Tyrell who said more human than human, um, which was echoed in this movie, too. Absolutely. Um, <laughs> Rat. I like that. Uh, I'll, I'll rephrase the psychotic. And Marissa, yeah, insanity. insanity. Yeah, insanity. <laughs> um, speaking I, of which, uh, well, the more human than human, um, that's uh, kind of, that ties in the um, subplot about, you know, the uprising and Frieza and so forth. So I want to talk about them a little bit and, and introduce that. Starting with, um, I didn't, I forget her name, but we'll call her Joy 2.0. Certainly brought him some joy. Mm-hmm. So, uh, like, what was your guys' take on her? I think it, it was interesting to like pair up these two women because it shows right. like the physical uh, attachment that he just needs that human needs towards another human being right. mixed, literally combined with the emotional attachment that he was trying to get from Joy. It it was visually it was interesting to watch and see how they quote unquote sync up with each other. But again, it it's also a very sad notion that you have to 
take two completely different things and put it together just to make one whole thing that he essentially just wanted um, in a human being, in, in a companion. Yeah, actually, from a, from a visual standpoint, when we talk special effects, to me, this is one of my favorite parts. Because it's not grand, but so hard when you think about it to fully realize what, what we saw on screen and the way we look at Joy, Mariette too. Mariette. There's a Mariette. She, she um, Joy herself, there's a translucence about her. What I thought was brilliant. And I noticed this in 3D a little bit more than when I saw it in 2D. You could somewhat see through her because she wasn't opaque. And you can see the back of her clothing or dress mm-hmm. and whatever. So you can sort of get that. Her coupling with, with Mariette sort of rhymes with Marionette. <laughs> um, That's probably by choice. I wonder. Um, but she, that scene alone, you know, when Joyce says, sit still, I, I need to sync up. Well, then you know that Mariette is a replicant. She goes, I got to sync. But when you think about what it took to make that scene and the way that the face was interchanging, coming in and out, to me, from a special effects standpoint, I was going, it was mesmerizing to watch. And it had to have taken such a long time to get right from a lighting standpoint. It was beautiful. Like that scene alone, forget about the spinner scenes and things. That scene to me was that was the that was the pinnacle of the special effects in this movie because it was so beautifully done. I liked that coupling and how Joy for two seconds became yeah. became solid. And Mariette knew what she was doing, and I lo- and I think there was a jealousy between Mariette and Joy when she was walking out. She was like, "I've seen inside you, not much there." I mean, that was a catty thing to say, <laughs> you know. And then she walks out the door. It was like, well. She's a little jealous, I think. Um, but it's a great scene, you know, for, 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 for Kay. That's, again, another step into Kay, Kay's humanity. And we already get a sense, if you go back to the original Blade Runner, you sort of get a sense that, uh, that, that Roy Batty and Pris had a relationship and that it was carnal in one way, shape, or form. They had a, yeah, I mean, I think that they were able to experience that where Kay had not, and that was the closest, well, that he's going to get. Mm-hmm. It was a beautiful scene. Marissa, your I take think. on it? Oh, yeah, I mean, I completely agree. I think it was great acting for both of these actresses to sync up the actual timing of and going oh. through the exact same motions at the same time, same marks. I... I thought it was visually interesting. It's also, it's not really the first time we've kind of, I mean, visually, I don't think we've really seen it like this, but the idea is not new because we've seen it in other films, like her trying to have a sexual relationship with an iOS system. You know, it, it's like trying to have a human love relationship with something that's unattainable. And I found my takeaway of the scene was just it's sad because it's not real or they try to get as real as it could be. But at the end of the day, it's still not perfect. No. Um, But I think Joy got, again, going back to our previous discussion about Joy, I, I believe Joy actually did feel something. 
you know that that was the whole that was one of the ideas it wasn't just for k but i i believe this was equally as as good for joy because she got to experience this as well right. because I, of mariette i felt this that in this particular moment in this scene that this joy relationship with Kay was actually reciprocal. Like, mm-hmm. she was her own human being reciprocating these emotional feelings of love towards him. And it was something Joy... And, and again, I think it's something that, that that Joy submitted... Like, Joy... I don't want to say submitted to, but she gave permission to. She called Mariette because she, you know, she was she's pretty much with him all the time as, as long as he has the hollow emitter. Mm-hmm. And he's like, oh, I thought, you know... Because this is something that I thought would be good. I know you'd like. And I think it was good for the both of them. I don't think she did it as a sex slave kind of yeah. thing. I didn't get that sense in any case. Maybe I'm being no, no, romantic. I, I don't know. I don't know. I think like as far as he's I don't know. Um, I kind of take it like he just went through the motions, so to speak. Do like you? Okay. Mm. Well, okay. I don't, you know, the next day um, or whenever it is, a couple hours... Um, he's already going to shower, and I get like that's a, that you can say that's a natural sort of thing for guys to do. But you know, had they been like cuddling or something like that, okay, I might read more into the situation. But it was just like this. Oh, let me just try this for the sake of trying it rather than. I got there was a, just a sense, a little sense of okay, we did that. That that sort of kind of that discomfort. Uh, like after, say, the first time, right? And because she, Marriott leaves, Joy's left behind, and he's like, all right, so coffee? <laughs> like, <laughs> that was what he goes, you want some coffee? Like, and I felt that they were going to talk more about it, but then things happen. Now, remember, though, there is something, too, if you want to compare it to the original Blade Runner. Deckard practically rapes Rachel in the first movie. I mean, she is saying no, and she even tries to get out of his apartment, and he slams the door and shoves her up against the wall and tells her what to say to him and says, like, yeah, tell me you like me, tell me you want to kiss me, or whatever. And there's a part... It's an uncomfortable... It's it's an uncomfortable scene. And she acquiesces um, you know, and obviously, I think that's the beginning, believe it or not, of 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 their their falling in love. I think that he already had it; she felt was feeling it for him. But it's a much different scene than in this scene with Kay and Joy. Much different. Oh, hundred percent. So, yeah, um, that we can certainly agree on. Um, let's talk about the uh, the leader of the rebellion, Frieza, um, and and how that kind of came into play. What was your? I, I thought she did. Uh, you know, again, it was just it was so late in the movie, and this was introduced that that it was a great scene. But you know, as we talked about it, because of how it affected Joe, not necessarily because now. Okay, great. Where are we going with this? So, I mean, honestly, I didn't feel like she had as big of a role or as memorable as a role as she could have been. I found Robin Wright. Way more memorable. Oh, like, and I, I mean, it's terrible. She, she is essentially the leader of all this, but 
I I don't know if it's just for the writing for this particular character, but she's not she wasn't as big as she could have been. Right. It was almost as if she was a red herring, and in and, and in part she was, because she's the one that tells Mariette and and the other women uh, mm-hmm. try to find out as much information about him as possible. They somehow know that he, that that he was the one that uncovered Rachel's bones and such. After the first time watching the movie, and I know Phil, you and I had a had a small conversation. Well, no, not a small conversation. We talked about the movie last week. And I was wondering, too, I said, geez, what happens if you take out this whole, for lack of better words, Westworld type of revolution between <laughs> AIs and humans? What if you took that out of the movie? Because did it have a place? Because I agree with you. It came so late in the movie, it was like there's just, you're like, what? what? What's going on here? And we're throwing in this character, to your point, who's not in the movie all that much. And it was like... Okay, so this is just... Initially, I'm like, it's just set up for a potential sequel. And I'm not entirely sure I need to see a revolution unless it's done smart. But then when I watched it the second time, albeit it does come late in the movie, but it is where Joe K realizes that I'm not the chosen one. But there's there's another important line in there, too. Where Frieza goes, oh, so you felt that you were the special one. You felt that you're... And he's like, well, I did. And he goes, we all have that thought at one time or another. We all believed. Because it seemed that they were connected by memory. Right? They weren't... Like, so that being connected by memory, and they all felt that they were the special or the chosen or or the miracle. They all felt that at one point that they were the miracle. But then upon learning, they knew who the miracle was and that the miracle needed to be saved again another humanistic thing and I'm like going okay I'm glad it's there I still don't know anything about Frieza when you compare her to Batista's character or Sapphire right. Morton or Robin Wright's character who is the most who is a very lonely human we want to talk about her Frieza character is just there to move the plot it is originally a red herring and I, used to move the plot forward. I think the thing is, is like Frieza was just overshadowed by three other stronger character women. I mean, you had Lieutenant with Robin Wright. You had Love. You had Joy. They had better storylines and better plot lines. And more. And, and yeah. more screen time than Frieza did. Yeah. yeah. I think they set Frieza up well for a future movie, but... She wasn't a big pivotal character in this particular film. Yeah. What did you uh, think about her? Um, you know, I thought I thought she could have delivered the information. I, uh, you know, uh, as far as the ending, I would loved like, you know, what what Blade Runner the original gave us was just the smallest li- li- little um, sliver of hope. And so with this one, the fact that there is like this uprising around us, like, I think it's just too much. I would have mm-hmm. pared it down, given me the information, and we're good. Mm-hmm. Um, so. But I do want to let's we've been hinting at the lieutenant, so I want let's talk Robin Wright because uh, she is lonely. I do agree there, uh, and it's almost this amazing thing where she knows replicants are so sub subvert subservient, subservient that um, essentially she can just dump her garbage onto them. You know, I think that's why she comes to um, Joe's apartment is for the fact of like, hey, I just the same way you connect with Joy. I want to connect with you, um, but it doesn't really. Wait, ma- are we talking about Robin? When did Robin Wright go to? 
Joe's the, apartment. They, they, they had share the memory. That was his. I thought it was at the off. I thought it was at the. No, no, she's that drinking. That was when, like, he just got the, the horse back and he's like, hey, I found it. <laughs> no, for some reason, I thought that was back in the office. No, I thought that no, was, that was his apartment. The, oh, okay. Yeah. And you've seen it twice? <laughs> I thought it was literally, I thought it, it all was blurs. the office. Because his apartment you must have was an so implant. Spartan. Uh, probably, whatever. It's uh, a false memory. <laughs> yes. <laughs> anyway, so. Scrambled memory. The, uh, the part where he, for the first time, were revealed the memory, um, they're at his apartment and she's drinking and so forth and yeah I, th- I think that was very much like I'm you know I know I'm I'm trying to find out information about you not in the standpoint that you know um, from a negative standpoint but yeah she's just trying to create a human connection and if and once again like I, I, I almost guarantee it like she would just dump her garbage because that's what replicants for her are there and she's stuck on you know the world and she's not in off world and you know, her job might be a little bit more glamorous than his, but certainly not by much. Right. Um, I like Robin Wright. I mean, she's a fantastic actress. Mm-hmm. But um, I feel she, she also plays the same alpha female characters that are also, like, great to watch. She's, she's so good at it. Um, I saw a lot of Claire Underwood in this character. Did you? Not that it bothered me. But it it made it very believable that she is a woman of power and authority and people can listen to her and she can put ple- people in her place when absolutely necessary. But there was a vulnerability factor about her, too. You can tell when she got upset or when she was happy. You, like, she wore her emotions on her, uh, hard on her sleeve in, in some sense, which in a way kind of gave her those humanistic qualities. Um, and I fell for her when she brutally got stabbed. I'm like, ah, crap, you know? I liked her. Yeah, I mean, for, for me, her character became hardened because of the job. I, I sort of was getting the sense that she was almost like, she was the, the 2049's Bryant. She was head of the Blade Runner unit or whatnot. Mm-hmm. So an emotionless, you know, a very difficult, hard job. And she had to deal with these replicants and make sure that they're baseline and doing their job. Her conversation, okay, a couple of things. Upon learning of Rachel's bones and that she died at childbirth, there's a look in her face that pretty much says, I'm dead. I'm, this is going to kill me. Like, we got to eradicate this. And my, by my knowing this, that was her tragic... That was it. That, that, that was the... the it was almost like she was like, this is going to kill me in the end by knowing this. Like, and, and she has that other line where she goes like, am I the only one who sees the fucking sunrise here? Mm-hmm. Like, does not anybody realize what this is going to do? And I understood her plight. Like, you get it. And it's like, you need to, we need to take, you can't tell anybody. And somehow it leaked. That's the other thing I'd want to know. Oh, we have a live chat going on. Oh, we do. Oh, that's cool. Are they? Oh, let's stick to the subject. No, but I I just think that they that her character not only was she lonely, there was empathy, there was burden of duty that she had, and she knew, and there was a leak. But when even before that leak happened, once she figured that out, you just get the sense that she knew she was going that this information was eventually going to be her undoing. And to me, that was a tragic sense of self-awareness. And I think since her only, her only connection to 
to to to K. You know, and even Kay's like, well, my memories are all fake. What do you want to hear them for? And she goes, I just do. And what if I order you to do it? She didn't necessarily order. She's like, okay. But for her, that was a, as you said, a connection. And you saw it. And when love comes in, first thing she does. And again, you just know when she came in, she sees him. She shuts off her computer. And she pretty much knows, I'm dead. And and even when love is like, you know, I'm going to tell Wallace that you tried to shoot me. And she's like, do whatever you got to do. And she's she crushed her hand holding the whiskey, the rocks glass. And it was very that was tragic. great, visually. visually. Just watching, it's like two women going at it. And like, it, it was more of like a battle of wits in a way. Yeah, and but you knew that Robin Wright, or she, she knew that. This was okay, it. this was is going to be it. And I really liked, too, the... So we're in there, and then it goes to outside. So we're watching this through the rain-drenched window where the final blow comes in. And then to be treated as even harshly because she needed her face thing, which now makes me very scared about facial recognition on an iPhone. <laughs> but And then <laughs> yep. just drops. She unceremoniously, her head hits the desk and... Pfft, I thought that was an interesting creative thing too. Which dur- one? During the death of of Lieutenant, when they actually go outside, it's like the viewers. Madam. Yeah, yeah, it's like the viewers looking out from the outside within. But I also saw it as a like a disconnectivity from a replicant in mm-hmm. a sense because had they kept the audience in the room and we heard it and we clearly saw uh, like a stabbing in that sense instead of taking us away from it and only making our imagine think of how terrible it was. Well, we was. saw it. You can I mean, see we, what happened. We saw it. But, but we were taken they, away But yeah, right. they purposely yeah. like cut to no music and mm-hmm. it was just visual. Yeah. And like I, I, I like that for that, our own personal interpretation. But I also didn't like that because it disconnected us from this person where we could have felt more if we actually saw it as terrible as that sounds we saw the more gruesome death we would have felt a little bit more towards the well, death we got the first cut and then, oh. yeah I mean I just I thought it was visually just very interesting of the choice to do that yeah. um, and then go back in because she needs to turn the computer on you see on the end find. result of it and yeah. the other thing that it does too is um, that scene set up how how love was able to track, how love was able to to track Kay, mm-hmm. and it was through the hollow emitter, it was through joy, that yeah. like when when he goes to the orphanage, I mean that's a really cool scene, and he's being shot at, and you know you're figuring Fire. how the hell did they find Fire. him? Yeah, Fire. and it's like how did she find him? Like where did she place? Oh, that's right. I hope you enjoyed that. You know, hope you're getting satisfaction from. Our product. I think, <laughs> yeah. I thought it was actually pretty cool when Love was like ordering like fire, fire, yeah, fire. She's, she's getting, getting manicure. <laughs> but like that just shows like how far the technology has advanced that you can literally cause a battle scene while you're getting a manicure. <laughs> like, well, it's that's just unfortunately true in today's day crazy. and age. Yeah. To a lesser extent, but certainly possible. Um, all right. I know there's still tons of story that um, we could dissect and continue, but um, I want to start to transition into more of the production side, and I'm, I'm sure we'll touch upon story because there's a natural fit there. Um, but this movie definitely deserves to for us to talk about um, the production side of it. Absolutely. Um, yes. Whether it, it is Denny, whether it is um, 
Roger Deakins and so forth. Um, let's start with the direction, right? Uh, because we've, uh, over Anatomy's lifetime, we've certainly praised... 400 episodes? <laughs> 400 plus episodes. Uh, I mean, think about it, like what three years now at least. Oh, no, four. no, we've been gone four. since 2000. Yeah. All right, yeah, since Pacific Rim. We, we are four years. Yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. All right, so there you go. Um, you know, we've covered Sicario. We've covered um, Arrival. Arrival. We haven't done Prisoners, but that's a wonderful movie as well. Yeah. Um, and you know, we were all very excited uh, with Arrival um, and what that movie did, and then um, you know, we praised it to no end. And then, you know, so I think he's he's got a very good progression of filmography under his belt. Um, and this, you know, um, any flaws that are part of this movie, I can only tie back to the script. You know, mm-hmm. so I don't necessarily blame him. Um, and I do applaud him, A, for being like, I'm scared, essentially shitless. Uh, like, this is a big undertaking. But you know what? I feel I, I'm capable of doing it. Um, so I'm going to go for it. Mm-hmm. And he did. And I thought, you know, overall, I think he did actually produce a masterpiece. I think he was the perfect choice for this movie. Um, I think people paid attention to his earlier films. And in a sense, they are Ridley Scott-type movies. When you look at his... When you look at Ridley Scott's movies, you know, like Alien or Blade Runner, right? They're, they, they're slow burns. They don't... They're not predicated on action so much right um even the movie not particularly good but the counselor which has a ton of dialogue oh yeah slow burn a movie and and yet it uh ridley scott does know how to film action alien covenant wasn't the slow burn that alien is he knows how to adapt but to denise villeneuve's like when you look at prisoners that's not a quick that's not a fast-paced movie at all right very deliberately paced, but it's very character-driven, and it sort of seeps into you. Sicario, same thing. I think to your point, Sicario, when we talked about it, if my memory serves, we were all pretty much on the same page, that really well-directed, it looked fantastic. Some of the characterizations and script things we thought, but it looked great. And then the arrival, I think we all agree that it was fantastic science fiction. And again, I think with his slow pacing... It allows the audience to take in what's going on so that by the time you come to the end, you understand Arrival a little bit better. And it also leads to a twist. Like, you're slowly going along, so when that st- a twist seeps in, you're going, wow. Right. I think Villeneuve does a great job of handling sci-fi content in a deliberate pace to the point where at the end, when we get the results and the... When we get to the ultimate climax and the realization of everything, it evokes an actual reaction from people. Mm-hmm. And you m- remember what happens, and that's what makes it also impactful. He does a great job of pacing it to the point where it hits you in the end. Right. And, and it is an old-school kind of filmmaking. And, and, and hear me out, because it's he'll stay on a shot longer than what we're typically used to today. Extra st- longer right. beats. He'll stay longer on a scene. He'll stay longer on a reaction. Great point, is, or, or a great example of that is when Kay gets to Las Vegas and he gets out of his spinner. It, the camera just stays on him as he's looking around. It's, it's, a long, it's a long take. 
which he does in all of his movies. But I think that it's because of that. And that's how they used to make movies. They, you know, they weren't all quick cuts and edits. And and I do and I do it lets it lets the story seep in a little more, and from that I think is the brilliance of his filmmaking. And when he's able to couple it with science fiction, he's the second time I think he worked with Roger Deakins because it mm-hmm. was in Sicario. I don't think Deakins did Arrival or Prisoners, um, but actually I think it's the third time. God, it was such a gorgeous, gorgeous movie to look at. Through his lens. Oh, I mean, Deacon is fantastic. There was a particular, um, if we're slightly kind of not to get away from Denny, but the the cinematography, there were so many shots where um, it it looked great panoramically, but you can clearly tell the background, middle ground, foreground. Um, A couple examples I can just think off of my head was when uh, Joy, Joy, First, officially, be, like can walk on her own, and they go outside right. to the the balcony landscape outside, and you can see that that face monitor in the background, yes. them two facing each other on the balcony, and then like even the foreground of like the building structure in front, um, pl- coupled with the amazing colored lighting just in that shot. Right. And then another one I can think of is when he first arrives to Las Vegas and he's out in the dusty. Uh, landscape and he finds the honeycombs right and you you saw the backgrounds with the that erotic structure you saw k in the middle and then if it rack focuses to the honeycombs in the foreground i thought it was gorgeous there's like this whole film you just you can watch this film without the audio and just be amazed by what you're visually seeing yeah it's a beautiful visual portrait i mean from beginning to end like seriously oh sorry it's like seriously just pause the film anywhere and it's it's a picture in and of itself yeah and that's why i couldn't stress enough because i'd seen the first time i watched it was in xd uh at cinemark playa vista and you're just taken away and i think you know maybe later on we'll we'll talk about it a bit too I think in part that was one of the things that the movie didn't feel long to me even though it's a two hour and forty plus minute movie I think I was so drawn in visually that I I was trying to look all over the screen just to just to take it all in it was so wonderful the interesting stuff to me um, as grand as it was he tries to employ a very simple lighting scheme Mm. Um, you know, so I'd be very curious to know how that fully applied to this. And I'm sure as the Blu-rays and so forth come out, it'll be quite interesting. Um, he only uses spherical lenses, which I'm a film guy. Uh, I'm not, a, I'm more of an editing guy rather than a cinematographer. So I have no actual idea what the hell that actually means. <laughs> I just know that he does. Um, but interestingly enough, you would think that he he would study um, what they did with Blade Runner in terms of lighting designs and schemes and so forth. And uh, tr- truthfully, he, he wasn't interested in that. He wanted to do his own um, and create his own. And, you know, the I, I don't know if it's an irony or a coincidence, whatever you want to call it. Um, you know, whereas the original Blade Runner takes place a, a lot at night. This one actually has a lot of daylight. And yet, uh, visually, um, they complement each other quite nicely. Um, despite his uh, deliberate effort to not necessarily care about matching. Right. Right. And like you said, for for the daylight, too, because some of the daylight scenes, they were purposely 
colored tone when he's out in the desert. You can assume that's in the daytime, but it's very orange, yellow across the board. But then when you cut to Jared Leto and his office, um, and it's still that same type of yellow-orange color. So there's a consistency mm-hmm. throughout. And yeah. even at night when there's the blue, you saw the blue during the day in the regular office. Right. Um, so like I loved... The, the simple colors, but it was so well done. So well yeah, done. it was, and even you know, from 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 the spinner's standpoint, uh, you know, as well, flying over a landscape, um, you know, looked beautiful. And and um, think about Wallace's uh, living room, uh, the reflection of the water all over his walls yeah. with that's what we're calling it, room. his living room. I don't know what. But sure, <laughs> yeah, living room it is. Could be a living room, but the office, his, oh, his office, yeah, um, his oasis. It, yeah. <laughs> it was, it was just beautifully photographed, um, and everywhere you went, I thought, <laughs> poor San Diego. San Diego is known to be one of the most beautiful cities in the country, <laughs> and, and it's, it's a trash. dump. Literally, <laughs> it's literally trash. a dumping. Ground. Well, to be fair, LA never gets snow, and no, every two seconds it's snowing. Right. I know, but I was like, "Oh, poor San Diego." Um, but it was, and again, this to me was part of the 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 the, the, mag- the beauty of this movie is that it did expand from beyond Los Angeles. Um, it took its 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 story to Las as far as Las Vegas, definitely all West Coast. But you know, when when we went to places like San Diego, um, there were the the reactor things that are there, uh, uh, Point of No Free, I believe that is. Um, I liked how it did expand the location and what this what this world post apocalyptic world uh, looked like. Because it wasn't just in Los Angeles that that this was affecting. The West Coast seemed to have been completely devastated and changed. And it Mm -hmm. took us outside. And I think it makes it, wisely, it does, it makes this a bigger movie. And that's why it's not as singular. The plot threads take K much farther out. And they spread across a lot more than Rick Deckard um, had to do and find uh, in the original Blade Runner. So wise choice and all beautifully filmed, whether it's lighting or special effects, the visual effects, which they went back to Sid Mead for mm-hmm. again, uh, particularly in Vegas, who did the original. Um, Sid Mead, who, who, who came up with the concepts of the spinner cars and worked with Douglas Trumbull, who we talked about a little bit mm-hmm. about Close Encounters. That's where we get our lens flare. Um, obviously, they sounded the, the cars flying by and past and down in 3D that you know if you love spinners see it in 3D and I think they also took the spinner and advanced the the new quote unquote new technology from the first movie where we had that scene where Deckard's like giving the computer all these demands zooming in on Mm -hmm. a particular photo just so he can hit the print button to print it well he does say print (laughs) Stop that, print it, and then he hits the print button. And then he hits the button. That, for some reason, that always bothered me. But I liked how they, they took the same concept and 
upgraded it a bit for the spinner um, in like just the video aspect, like zoom in here, go up. Well, yeah, he has his little drone. Yeah, and I like that. It wasn't like just looking at one still image. It was looking at a visual video canvas. Yeah. And um, I I thought that was a nice upgrade. Yeah. Yeah. My only absolute nitpick, and I I swear to God, I fucking hate this, so please, (laughs) filmmakers, if you're fucking listening, I understand this. I get it. Especially in this case, the way you guys are making it sound, it's a painting. We don't want we don't want to ruin this painting. However, if you're gonna put up goddamn subtitles, make them readable. Dude, I, you know, I, we had the conversation. You know, <laughs> we had the conversation last I week. I could read right? it. I don't know what well, you're talking about. Well, here, I no, I know, I believe I know to the point what you're talking. It wasn't because I thought you were talking about the opening. Like it wasn't just the opening, but, no. But to me, like, I could read the opening where where I really noticed it, because I guess I didn't, maybe I didn't just see it because it was so damn small, was where they were telling you Los Angeles, Wallace's place. And I'm like, the hell? Like, that is so damn tiny. San Diego, like, even with 3D glasses, I can't see that. Like, it should have been. I get that argument. I, I thought you were meaning the, the subtitles for when they were speaking a different language. I was like, no, I, I, I could get, read that. Do you mean all of it? Yeah. Or, because no, I no, meant the location. I meant the location. So that was so damn tough. Like, I meant when the, they're establishing the shots of where yeah, they are. That was yeah. so that small. That was small. LAPD. And I'm like going, that, that it, that's what he's talking about. <laughs> He is right, goddammit. Okay. <laughs> of course I'm right. No, it's not the subtitles of, of the character that's trying to sell him a real host. No, I, 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 I can read that he wants a real horse. I get that. Uh, the crawl at the beginning, I had a little bit of issues, but legible. But yeah, like San Diego, that was the. Did you use a size 8 font? Yeah. On, like, the world's biggest movie screen. Like, I, I get it. It's a beautiful three. image. You don't want to ruin it. no less. I, yeah, I was just... Um, <laughs> it's a very readable font, you guys. <laughs> I was just... Again, I don't even think I noticed him in, like, the first time I saw him. And the second time, I was like, they were that... Well, they're so goddamn small. How could anybody notice them? <laughs> that's... Yeah. So, that's my nitpick of the, of the movie. Yeah. All right. That's fair. <laughs> so, please, do everyone a favor. Either make them legible... And big, or don't include them at all. Make them like the the Fast and Furious movie. You know, when they went to di- different location, it was big on screen and in the shots. Yeah, I don't mind like it, in it the was corner. in the it's ocean. Like we are not in Honduras. You know what? Whatever. <laughs> make uh, it like, red. I like make that. it something. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, that's enough about that. They have that. to retire that font. <laughs> um. Uh, Okay. Um, <laughs> anything else cinematography wise, uh, whether it's a specific scene or obviously for me, um, it was like as far as action is concerned, it was the most actiony scene with the, um, w- whatever we're gonna call it the um, the water. I'll the call water. it the water. The water wall. The, the water, water storm. Yeah. 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 The, the, uh, the, the, the the wall. The water wall. Mm-hmm. I thought that um, a just looked so cold, and miserable. B like just unrelentingly brutal as far as the fight scene between um between love and joe it uh and and poor deckard he's like get me out of here i felt bad for deckard in that i thought it was great um there was a moment watching it i was like how many gallons of water are being poured on it was actually a million there you go thank you it was a million gallons of water that was used but i actually had that's good to know because i had that thought i'm like all these poor actors 
but they're getting paid a lot, so they're they're fine. But the, while the but, water was uh, temperature eighty degrees, yeah, well, that's then why I it don't was feel mist. so bad <laughs> anymore. Shoot, it was colder outside. Hence the mist, and it wasn't even done like it wasn't done for atmosphere purposely for atmosphere. It just mm. happened because they were heating that water with tanks to come up to eighty degrees that it caused this mist. And they're like, "Happy accident, <laughs> awesome!" <laughs> it's great cinematography. Let's great. add it. Awesome. Um, I I liked it. I thought it was very well done because because you can kind of get the sense of how big it is, but because it was so dark and in a way very trapped and isolated between the the two spinners, the two vehicles, right. you really never got that full scope of how far away they are from each other. I mean, they're swimming towards, like, one vehicle to the next. Right. And I like that because, it, in a way, they're, they are stuck in just this one place, and they're very limited to space. The other thing that makes that scene, too, is that uh, the downed spinner, uh, the one that Deckard is and Love is in, uh, and you've said... We have to have it so that it's it's moving constantly. Because if we just have it so that it's like like stationary, it'll look like a tank. Like mm-hmm. we have to make sure that the waves are affecting it, that it's not on any kind of terra firma whatsoever. That this thing is being battered up against the wall, and that was part of the you know like sometimes it would move and the water would go down <laughs> so Deckard could breathe or something. <laughs> but I it, but it was an we don't. I didn't think of it, but that that was done all, on purpose, uh, and and it worked. It worked. That that was a great scene uh, as to how it was filmed. Um, so, yeah, yeah, very much so. As a quick uh, trivia note, uh, Harrison Ford is really becoming like the father of the '80s. Whether it's Indiana Jones and <laughs> Mud, whether it's um, Star, Star Wars, Wars and now this, yeah, he's got. Uh, a lot of offspring. Jack Ryan, too. I mean, he's... Harrison Ford was untouchable in the 80s. You know, anyway. Uh, it's so, partly in the 90s. I mean, Air Force One, I think, is a 90s right? movie. And it is. This no, guy, but did he have a kid from Air Force One? Uh, who knows? So that's what I'm saying. <laughs> oh, yeah, he was a movie kid. I think he did he's have a kid. He's the fatherly figure of the 80s. Yeah. <laughs> um, he's a good dad. Anyway. He uh, just doesn't know how to fly planes as well anymore. That's all right. <laughs> So let's talk about uh, the editing, right? Uh, so Joe Walker joins again. They worked on Sicario. They worked on Arrival. Um, before that, um, he is a man who's worked on 12 Years a Slave and a couple other movies. Um, but very much, and I don't know how you couldn't have, they had the intention of making it R-rated. I don't, you know. I mean, I don't, I don't it's know to how. be expected in this film. Um, and... You know, I think we, we've sort of made mention about it, just talking about the storylines. Um, in essence, what we're also talking about is the editing, because um, you can have a long shot as long as you want, but if you cut it, then no one knows that it existed. And so um, this was kind of very deliberately done in, in such a way. Um, I think, Marissa, you pulled this. The Elvis Funhouse. Yes. Um, the Elvis Funhouse sequence was actually one of the, the longest sequence to edit it took five to six months because of the the mixture of elvis and marilyn monroe and liberace they had to edit to the glitches of the the system but also edit to the lighting um and they had to match that too so that took up a lot more time than they thought it was going to be because they had to get to an actual emotional and narrative state in the fight scene that it would match up 
also with the music and the lighting. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, and those are things, and we, we talked about match cutting, but when you're right. trying to add dialogue plus visual mess on screen together, it's, it's quite the undertaking. Yeah, I mean, just a little bit, too, in the background for, for Vegas. So it was in the center of Budapest. Uh, the production transformed in an un- unoccupied building that, catch this, it was a previously housed Hungary's largest TV station uh, into the Vegas lobby, mm-hmm. which was a gorgeous. Again, that lobby reminded me very much of the original Blade Runner, like the Hobart Hotel, like where, where Sebastian may have lived. It had almost this Art Deco kind of feel to it, which I loved. So... And to your point, too, regarding that showroom, now, to me, that reminded me a lot of the Flamingo uh, Hotel and its showroom. With the, they, they had the, the dancers reminded me of Flamingo dancers. And Deacons, um, for Deacons, he says the performance required an extremely intricate lighting design. Um, the show suddenly starts up, then it falters, glitch, turning into a chaotic light show. And he, he spent weeks mapping out different lighting patterns and then worked with the local company in Budapest to produce computer pre-viz for the whole thing. And then we worked from there until he had a lighting pattern he needed to rig. So, And you could tell, too, and again, from a visual effects standpoint, that was, like, really well done. Um because we saw the glitches, everything was in motion, how it came up. And when you think about that scene, our characters weren't stagnant. They weren't staying in one position. They're moving all around that into get your camera in a position while, and then you have to have somebody go, wait a minute, there was a dancer over here and she was wearing yellow. The script supervisor definitely earned her pay that day. <laughs> oh, for sure. But also, you, just the added effect of a strobe light that is supposed to be visually jarring to mm-hmm. to watch and experience. So I, I think just showing that when there was constant kinetic motion to a constant light that's going on and off that will actually make people nauseous. Yeah, yeah. I'm not epileptic, but that was... Yeah. I mean, that's the reason why strobe lights can cause epilepsy and and actual grand mal seizures. It's bad, you guys. And and again, let's go back. So it ends with Deckard is just more or less punching out, you know, Kay, who's just not really giving up much of a fight. And when you think about how long the camera stays on them when Deckard stops, and he's like... We can either go at this all day or we could have a drink. <laughs> and then even he's like, well, all things considered, let's go have a drink. <laughs> and it's, it's a great scene that shows a, a, a slight bit of humor. Um, yeah, it, it was a very It was a nice end to scene. a chaotic scene. Yeah. That's good. Yeah. It's, you know, uh, another tidbit of that, and I don't know whether or not this is true, um, but uh, Harrison Ford, because of all the strobes and so forth, like he accidentally did... Act- Punch, punch, yeah. Ryan Gosling, yeah. he didn't mean to, but like, I mean, at that point, like, what are you supposed to do? It, it was it, that 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 was reported like a week or so before the movie was coming out during all the publicity, and there was a shot that came up. Did you believe that shot as being because they were saying the? You're assuming the, I saw the shot. Oh, oh the the shot that. through the couch. Yeah, or, like, which particular like, shot? Well, there's a there's a photograph out that says. This is the supposed shot where 
Harrison Ford actually hit yeah. mm-hmm. um, Ryan Gosling. And the looks on their faces, I'm trying to discern, is it live or is it replicant? Because mm-hmm. it almost looks like it could have been, like, I'm sure it happened because they talked mm-hmm. about it a lot. Um, I was just wondering if they just set up that to make, because it's sort of a funny shot when you look at their faces because Harrison Ford has a look in his face like, oh my God. <laughs> and... Um, uh, Ryan Gosling's face was like, oh, I was just punched in the face. That's it right there, I believe. Mm. But, I mean, you suffer for your art. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's what I always keep saying. You know, listen, you suffer for your art. I think Ryan's, Ryan's a good sport. He's like, hey, listen, I got punched by Harrison Ford. I'm, you know. Right. I mean, not many people something. can say that. Um, that's the shot. Thank you for bringing that up. That's awesome. Um, so, uh, so there you have it. Um, as far as uh, you know, visual effects, obviously a lot of great stuff. And we've talked about the, um, I'll call it the sex scene with Joy and so forth. Um, we've talked about it a little bit. But um, I want to talk about Rachel in particular because as far as visual effects goes, you know, we've seen this with Star Wars. We've talked about it with Star Wars. Um, and in this one, I felt it was the most organic because, um, you know, Rachel, we're supposed to recreate Rachel and she's supposed to be a replicant, not real. And so just on the notion that that's what the movie's going for and that's what it actually achieved, it it was very haunting on, on that type of level mm-hmm. as opposed to like, you know, it's just a film trick that we can utilize so we'll utilize it. Right. Which I don't honestly fault Star Wars for. I get it. They're trying to do the best that they can. But this just had a deeper wow level. It works more better for the narrative of what the whole story is it it actually reflects what's going on and i think it shows you can get so close but again you're still not perfect and and they have that self-awareness that hey we tried yeah we tried so and again i haven't found much talking about how that was filmed but um sean young is credited so well it's not her so as far as as, okay. far, as far as I know, so they got um, they got somebody else. Um, they, they credit Sean Young because obviously it's her okay. likeness. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but as far as the acting, it was another actress, and they got someone uh, who's. In, if you notice it, like she's got two lines, right. very like three word, yeah. two lines Did each. You, have you missed me? Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and and it was a sound alike type right. of person. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, which is interesting. Like uh, I don't know what the reason like. Uh, why not just kind of take Sean Young and de-age her, I guess? Yeah. Um, but they chose not to do that, so I, I found that interesting. Maybe maybe that's harder. Um, but I, And also, though, to your earlier point, something's just a little bit off. Mm-hmm. And I think to, to, to sympathize with Deckard, right, because we notice that something's a little bit off. And he's like, he, he's being now, obviously, it's a haunt, and emotionally... His heart's being dragged through, like grainy, very coarse salt, and you know he's got to know that it's not right. Like this isn't something; it's not right. And I, to your point, I think yeah, if if you're gonna do it, this is the way to do it because we know that it's not Rachel because his, her skull is right there for crying out loud. Number one, so he can't quite get her down to the T. The, the, the technology is not there yet. Maybe. I thought this was a bigger shock. Obviously, we'll talk about the promotion, and we all knew Harrison Ford was going to be in the movie, but um, as far as, 
you know, um, when he came on screen, he got a reaction. When Rachel came on screen, because it was such a surprise, everyone just gasped and was like, what? Yeah. That was... Well, I think also the thing is you're not expecting actual Rachel to appear back on Mm -hmm. screen after, throughout two hours, two and a half hours of the movie telling you she's dead, you get in your mind that, okay, we're not physically going to see her in human form. Um, but th- with the promotion of the movie, everyone knows that Harrison Ford was back. So you're just that anticipation of how he comes back and his reveal. It's not as big as Rachel's. No, it's not because she was. Okay, well, I mean, fans of the original Blade Runner know that um, he runs off with Rachel. Uh, depending on what version of the movie that you see, they're, they're, they're off into the sunshine into, you know, Portland, <laughs> the woods of Portland, or, you know, it just ends with them leaving. So you know that they're together. So once 2049 was announced that they were going to do it, one of the big questions always remained, what happens to Deckard and Rachel? Like, what happens to them? She was nowhere to be found at all in the the trailering or the marketing. None. Not in the posters. Not at all. So it led a fan like myself to go, where's Rachel? What happened to Rachel? Oh, no. They're going to explain this. You know, I, I don't dig deep because I, I want to know as less about a movie when I go into it. Hearing the revelation that, that those bones were Rachel, that was huge to me, a fan. That she gave birth. Holy shit. That's what makes her... That's what Tyrell was talking about. And when she shows up, to me, it was, it was a gasp of, that Wallace is... Like, he's just evil. Like, that's... Like, that's awful. And you're like, at least I see Rachel. But there was a picture of her, too, that was even better. And I'm almost sure that that was her voice in the oh, yeah. the digital... Because that voice was dialogue. Yeah, that was taken over. from the movie. From, from Blade Runner. But when I see her, you're like going, oh, my God, that's awful. That, like... It's so it's, great, it's awful. Yeah, it's... Uh, that's awful. And Harrison, your your point to Harrison Ford in that scene. I think this is number one. I think this is one of Harrison Ford's best roles, best performances in years. Like I was looking up his past movies, and this one for sure. Uh, to me, it's like supporting actor type, nominatable. I thought he was so amazing, and then that one scene because he has to play this gambit of. They're hurting me. I can't show that I'm being hurt, but I, that this is terrible. Like, and then for him to turn away and go, her eyes are green, knowing what's going to happen. Yeah. You know, oh, it's such a powerful scene. Absolutely, so crazy. Definitely, uh, definitely got a lot right in that one. So, yeah. Um, but yeah, uh, that is all but one mm-hmm. of many examples in terms of the visual effects. Oh, yeah. um, but let's shift gears into the music. Um, here's sort of my running joke as far like I like the music I really did but as far as the mix goes it's as if um, they sat there and and said hey um, you know you know what Uh, I can still hear the dialogue and they're like okay do you want me to lower the dialogue no raise the dialogue as loud as you can okay and then raise the music so it's higher so it's higher it's like what just, just it became so, and it was like, hey, I can still hear the dialogue. Raise the music, mm-hmm. and um, yeah, it just uh, 
to me it was typical Hans Zimmer, just too loud at portions. Yeah, I agree because there there were moments where it's like at the beginning of the movie when we first see the spinner enter Los Angeles, it's at nighttime, and nothing is happening other than it's just driving in the air, and then there's the big bomb. I'm like, that's not necessary. That's not necessary. Yeah, um, I've listened to uh, I've actually I've listened to the 2049 soundtrack, and I was listening to it on my way up here. Um, comparing it, and I have the, the the Blade Runner special edition soundtrack, and Zimmer did his best to channel Vangelis, and I get if you know he doesn't want to copy him, but he didn't. The one thing he didn't pick up from Vangelis was subtlety. <laughs> he didn't, and, I, and what I mean is, uh, well, and it's funny because like there's a lot of bar- like there was a lot of bass, like you know, um, especially in that last the spinner dogfight scene and like and when he's in Vegas when he gets out of that car I mean things rattled in my theater there were no as, as the first time that I listened to the soundtrack on its own I was one song in two songs in the third song in I was like there's no string like there's literally no string like type synth. instrument there's no harp that, that I know Vangelis used to, to, to effect in the original Blade Runner. And it actually grounded it, it added a sentimentality. And I'm not saying that the 2049 score doesn't have its its low points, like it's it's more softer tones, but it's all, it's seemingly all synth. It's mm-hmm. all mechanical. There's nothing that, that, that seems... Futuristic. Yeah, but there's nothing that grounds it in like a real like a harp type or string type of, uh, of an influence, it became bombastic. Yeah. Um, and, and it could have used, at times, it could have used a little subtlety. The only time in which there was any kind of bridging was when Kay or Joe passes and he used the Tears, tears in the Rain theme that Vangelis had for when Batty passed away and he gave his wonderful Rutger Hauer gave that awesome monologue that bridges the two movies uh, with, with some other hints here and there I just wish there was more subtlety he wasn't supposed to uh, Hans Zimmer wasn't for some reason his normal collaborator who's the the guy that did the arrival we can oh, I can't, uh Johan Johansson yeah, yeah I think he was supposed to do this but then and, he's not allowed to th- We'll talk about the promotion, but like most things around this movie, he's not allowed to talk about what actually happened. They just, uh, I, I don't know what to call it, didn't like his score. He just they didn't hire him, which yeah. is kind of sad because he, he was coming up in his own right, and I would have liked to see what he did. I don't know if he presented something and they just truly didn't like it or they just really wanted Hans Zimmer. I don't know, and I don't want to speculate on those terms. Yeah, I just knew that he was supposed to uh, in something and that they went with Hans Zimmer. It's probably like creative choices. Things yeah. changed just creatively that yeah. didn't match with his original music. But I'm curious. I mean, now, I mean, when I found that out, I was like, and now watching the movie a few times and listening to the score... Like I'd be curious just to know what actually happened. What was it? Like, what did he have in there? Like, it, w- it would just be interesting from a, from a score fanatic um, mm-hmm. type of way because he is a good composer too. That guy, you know? he is. I mean, yeah. he's proven arrival. We we had a lot of praise for the soundtrack absolutely. itself. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, one of my pet peeves with this movie was the fact that. Um, 
promotion wise, we knew that Harrison Ford, like, I know from a lot of people, they put so much um, secrecy around this entire movie, so much so that Marissa was supposed to be a plus one for a screening. And then when she arrives to the screening, they're like, we're no longer accepting plus ones. Yeah, yeah, that's a story I didn't want to say. But yes, I was supposed to see this film. Sorry. <laughs> it's okay. Um, I'm over it because I've seen it. I was supposed to see this film, an early press screening of this film, like three weeks ago, like early on. But it was so hush-hush, NDAs, NDAs, NDAs. They wouldn't even let me be like a, be that plus one when we were told twice that I could be. And uh, I couldn't get into the screening because it was Harrison Ford's and and Ryan Gosling. It, like they made up lame excuses that I couldn't get in. Um, but I was like, everyone knows that Harrison's going to be in it. It's not a big secret, and that's also why we signed NDAs because you yourself are protecting if secrets get out. Right. Um, but. Other than that, I didn't get into it, but I, I watched it now, so it's, it's all I just, good. I didn't, here's the thing, I, I wish that was, because that could have been such a big reveal. Wait, what's that? The Harrison, Harrison Ford. Ford came, Deckard came back. Like, you know, we'll talk about it as far as the box office is concerned. Like, no offense, Harrison Ford is not a box office draw. But as far as Blade Runner, right. like, that, imagine the reaction. Well, he was in the marketing material for That's, Right. Yeah. But that's what I'm saying. Right. But why why include him in that? Right. You know, have him hide out. It's okay. That I don't because for for me a lot of the first time that I watched the movie, you know, most of it I remember was just like, when's Harrison, Harrison Ford is going to come in for like two minutes in this movie, isn't he? Because mm-hmm. it was like, where, where's Harrison Ford? Where is Harrison Ford? And just I kept checking my watch, like, okay, we're an hour in. Oh, now we're an hour and a half in. He technically, uh, according to websites, comes in at an hour and 40. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. pretty late in the game. That's, yeah. That is very late in the game. Most movies are done by then. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Ours just starting. Um, <laughs> the only, for me, um, working with that sort of stuff, to me, showing that Harrison Ford is in the movie is the bridge. Um, it's been almost 30 years uh, since yeah. the original... 82. 35. Yeah, 35 years since the original Blade Runner. You have to go in somewhat... You have to go in figuring... There's a lot of people who may not have even seen Blade Runner and know what this is. And then your fans, who know Blade Runner, I, I think would be more even intrigued because if you don't show Harrison Ford in any of the marketing, then you're like... Well, what am I watching? Like, why do I want to care? Because Blade Runner ended so open-ended that the thing is, what happened to Deckard? And if you're cutting a trailer that shows nothing of Deckard, you're like, why am I going to see this? I want to know what happened to Deckard. I don't want to... Ryan Gosling's doing what? (laughs) Like, Mm -hmm. what do you show? I think the big reveal was, as we just said, it was Rachel. It was showing Rachel show up on screen and that plot line and the plot line that she gave birth because that is what now once do you get that right notion that there's a birth story from any of the promotion or the trailers you that's the reveal you, that's like that's to me that reveal. was the not only was it a reveal that a replicant could give birth it was a reveal that it was rachel mm-hmm. and you go oh mm. 
Just speaking for myself as a Blade Runner fan, when that shows up, and that comes in, what, within the first 15, 20 minutes of the movie, right? Felt a lot longer than that to yeah. me. Well, really? like, what, what, the idea when, that when, there's, there's, like, an actual human, there's yeah. a biological human out there. Yeah, well, it wasn't even biological, it was, yeah, it was, I was like, There's a baby the out there in the world. Holy shit, yeah, I was like, she gave birth? Oh my god, that was Rachel? Oh my head! No wonder. Okay, now how does Deckard fit into this? Mm-hmm. And you're right. It's it's an hour and forty. It's an hour and forty minutes in. He was on screen a hell of a lot longer than like some other movies who would just use it as a marketing stunt, yeah. which I was glad because if he was in the movie for two minutes and then they killed him off, then you're like, what the hell? <laughs> right? What's the point? <laughs> what is the point? Um, so, I don't know. I understand their marketing choice for showing Harrison Ford because it really does connect. And at least the Blade Runner fans go, we're going to find out what happened to Deckard and, and what's going on. Mm-hmm. So, Fair enough. Um, well, the unfortunate part is, uh, as much as we've been praising this box office-wise, it's, it's not hitting the way that it was intended to. Um, certainly, you know, it's projected anywhere between 43 and 50 million um, in the U.S. Nah, didn't didn't get there. Certainly, um, came in about um, overall at what um, 32 million. 32.7 million. Yeah, which is not great. Um, according to Forbes, here's the reasons why it didn't. Um, I can't say this is 100 percent it, but this is according to Forbes. One, it's R-rated and adult skewing. Um, and there's a lot of competition in that space at the moment. Um, in particular, It, the movie It, stole Thunder. Like, that movie's just taken off like wildfire. Mm-hmm. Um, the mystery box marketing, as they define it, backfired. Um, there was little conventional female appeal. Um, in fact, I made Marissa go see this. Yeah, so no, that I completely that. agree with that. I didn't want to. Um Reviews emphasized that it wasn't an action-filled crowd-pleaser. Um, it was also, for most people, way too long. Um, again, almost three hours. Um, it's not remotely kid-friendly. Uh, they cite Ryan Gosling and Harrison Ford not as openers. Um, the term for general audiences, Blade Runner, doesn't really mean much. And it was way too expensive to make. Because the original Blade Runner was budget-wise pretty contained mm-hmm. it was also made in 1981 oh, you know, I get it was that. also made in the early i'm 80s, adjusting for inflation so, but right so you know and also don't forget like this is very interesting talking about blade runner 2049 because the first movie blade runner was by no means a hit in no fact, not at all no in fact it almost if not sank the lad company which produced it um back then um it was not a hit at all uh People and people, critics alike. I mean, again, talk about a divisive movie. Well, that was the voiceover. That was the voiceover version. No, people, people just hated the movie. It wasn't until years later that once, once there was this cult enough status to come up that Ridley Scott wanted to go and revisit this and try to make what he called. See, the one thing about Blade Runner is. Where Ridley Scott will call this his definitive version, or th- this is his director's cut, he the other cuts continue to remain. It's not. It's really like it's. It's interesting because we we don't get five cuts of a movie. 
And we have the theatrical cut. We have the international theatrical cut. We've got Ridley Scott's first director's cut. Then we have his definitive director's cut. And now we also have the, the, the test screening cut. And they're all made available. So any cut that you like, you can watch and is not being taken away from people to see. So there are five cuts of the movies available. Um, critics didn't like this movie when it came out. And people either loved it or didn't. I was, I was one that, I saw this a couple of times. I, was, I loved it. Um, like I said, I wrote three papers on it in college. So the mere fact that now this one's getting good reviews, it almost makes me wonder, do people like not want to be in the wrong side of history? Because now people love Blade Runner, well, and, they, and, they, and they talk about cuts that they like. They like it a hell of a lot more than they did in 1982. Well, well true, in but. fairness, we're also in the movie <clears throat> era of sequelitis. Every movie that comes out is from a previous franchise, or it's a remake or reboot, or just a sequel of an okay film that could have been, you know, they just garner more money. I think people are just tired of seeing another movie of something else. So, I mean, I think that could also have affected just um, viewers as, like, uh, it's the sequel or it's an addition to an original film. Which is sad because in this one, you know, I think there's a place for movies such as this that actually treat it right and do a good job with it versus ones like like Flatliners. No, at what (laughs) point did Flatliners ever needed to be remade? Yeah. Yeah, no, this, this was not a blatant money grab. This, this was really given the tender love and care that it deserved um, to try to, to hopefully the, the fans who love Blade Runner, it wouldn't insult them and perhaps can't garner a new audience. It is hard, however, to make a movie 35 years after original. its original. It's hard because that movie, although it's in a cult status, it's in a cult status or it's in a popular status among, as you said, film fans. We are film fans. I know of Blade Runner um, always have, but there are other people growing up. If you're a teenager, Blade what? What, what, Blade, what Blade Runner? Yeah. Like they, you know, it's a new Philip K. Dick, thing. who's he? Right. So that could have played into it, you know. And as of uh, the twelfth, it's done forty-five point four million. Um, you know, it is interesting that it's foreign. Uh, the, the the foreign markets that they opened up in, and it hasn't opened in China yet, although. Uh, it was news this past week that they finally have a release date for China. It's going to be huge in China. It should be pretty good in China. There's a lot of Asian influence in this film. Absolutely. But 52% of the gross, of the worldwide gross, came from foreign territories. where It's done $49 million. So all in, it's up to $94 million plus. Um, And they haven't expanded to all foreign territories yet. Uh, Its production budget was about, what was it, $150 million. So... They probably spent onwards and upwards to at least, at the very least, two hundred million, mm-hmm. maybe more. Right? Um, Gosling and Ford were everywhere. You know, they did a lot of promotion. There was a lot of video, a lot of billboards. Um, the trailering, you know, I saw the trailers a lot. So, you know, I, I, to me, the, the the marketing, the trailers hit for me because I'm a fan. But I don't know how it would be for a non-fan. Well, it was, uh, and I don't know what, how they got this metric and, you know, across how many people, but the most anticipated movie of 2017. 
over Last Jedi? Over Star Wars? Hey, man. I'm <laughs> just telling you what I read. <laughs> Who thought listen, of don't, that? Don't shoot the messenger. <laughs> okay, yeah, listen. Now, it, 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 88% on Rotten Tomatoes. Now, here's the other interesting thing. It's an A- minus on CinemaScore. Which, which is saying that audiences really love this movie. I mean, A minus. Um, the cinema score thing sort of kind of needs, I think, a rejiggering, to be honest, because it seems that any movie that's less than an A is going to suck word of mouth wise. But I'm not entirely sure that word of mouth wise is it's getting effective. out there, is affecting Blade Runner. Now, I know that during the week it was doing okay. You know, it wasn't doing horribly. Um, 45 million, but we'll see. There's a lot of competition this week Is for there? movies. Well, they're saying that uh, uh, Happy Death Day um, will get the kids out. Uh, you got The Foreigner, which may not. Um, those are our two wide releases in, in any case. I think, so, I think you don't really have too much competition until Thor Ragnarok. For, I, for this movie, I, I don't know. I mean, we are, we're, we're, we're in the midst of October. Horror movies are very popular in October. It's a good time to release a horror movie because even non-horror people will go see a no. horror movie. So, um, I, I don't know. I if, if this has a... Let's be optimistic and say Blade Runner has a 50% drop. That at the very least means it's going to be $16 million in its second week. And that's being optimistic at 50%. So, generally, a science fiction movie could get up to 60 or 55 60 i'm trying to be optimistic now right. hopefully the word of mouth will keep it along but i think as time goes on like the original blade runner people are going to like it yeah. like a wine the older it gets Fine wine. more people are going to appreciate it age is better yeah, age better. Well, you know, the interesting part is they did say that, hey, if this one does well, they will do a third film. So we'll, we'll see where um, things land on that. Um, unfortunately, we've got to start wrapping up. Um, but you know what? Uh, definitely that doesn't mean the conversation has to end. Uh, that's what the comment section's for. Sure. And you know what? If we truthfully unraveled this, I mean, we'd be here for 35 years. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, unfortunately, you know, I've got stuff to do in those 35 years. <laughs> Uh, uh, I got nothing going on. Uh, final thoughts at Serafini TV. Give yes. us what you got. Um, I really enjoyed this film. I liked it way more than I thought it was going to. It's a visual spectacle. It makes you think. It, it's a it's a mind-provoking film, and I applaud this film on all fronts. And follow her at Serafini at TV. TV. Yeah, you know, if this ends up being the last Blade Runner movie, I think it finishes and wraps up Deckard's story beautifully. Uh, I think Harrison Ford is fantastic. I really do think that this is a beautiful science fiction movie, perhaps the best that we'll see this year. So, yeah. Could you and, raise the music so we don't, you know, we yeah, don't so hear we dialogue? Talk- <laughs> oh, you're um, trying to shut me kidding. up again. No, <laughs> no, just trying to replicate the movie. All right, um, at DMovie1701 for Dimitri. Please Definitely support me on Twitter. Yeah, continue con- conversing with him. Yeah. Um, and, uh, yeah, I've already said most of what I need to say, but um, I'm sure I'll think of stuff that I didn't say, so I'll let you guys know in the comments section. Uh, definitely check out uh, other Popcorn Talk movies, other anatomy of movies we've done next week. Uh, we'll do The Foreigner. We're doing The sure. Foreigner. Yeah. Um, uh, check me out at philsvtech.com. Thank you guys as always. We'll see you next Thanks time. Bye. Producers Maria Menounos, Kevin Underdog, Phil Svitek, and the entire Popcorn Talk Network. We would like to thank you.
you for tuning in. For questions or comments, be sure to visit popcorntalk.com. I'm Sir Richard Wentworth, and this has been a presentation of the Popcorn Talk Network. The views expressed herein are those of the hosts only and do not necessarily reflect the views of the Popcorn Talk Network or its owners or principals.